Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This series is brought to you by MetLife. At MetLife, we believe in the value of advice, and that's why we're determined to support advisors with a life insurance experience that is sustainable, efficient, and unique. So, when the unexpected happens, we're there to provide care, compassion, support, and expertise for advisors and their clients when they need it most. MetLife. Life inspired by you. Hello and welcome to this part four of our five-part series on the new risk environment for income protection as we settle in to the changes from IDII. I'm your host, Fraser Jack, and in this episode, our panel discusses the human side of the changes from advisors and staff to claims teams and clients. These technical changes affect the humans involved after all. Let's dive into this episode now. Welcome back to this episode where we're really talking about the uh, the human side of the, the the products and the policies. We've just spent a lot of time talking about the actual uh, the actual controls themselves within the policies, but I want to talk about some of the humans around it uh, from both the advisor point of view and the client point of view. Uh, let's start with the the idea of the risk specialist. Now we've got a couple of risk specialists on this particular panel, and then uh, we've also got uh, uh, John, who's doing a holistic type of advice. Uh, what's the future going to hold? Uh, tell us about what your thoughts are around risk specialist versus um, holistic advice and people trying to do holistic advice, John. So um, I actually started in the game as a risk specialist um, and I was actually a risk specialist for a long, long time. Actually, i done my, call it back then, my apprenticeship um, at a risk specialist place and um, I, I love risk. I always have, always will and even though I'm a goal-based financial advisor, um, risk is a big, big um, element of proper fin- financial advice. It's one of the key pillars of, of the foundations of a proper plan. What I'm finding is that risk specialists, both through legislation, education, and simply what the requirements are in now 2022, that transactional salesman 1990s kind of is nearly, let's call it dead. Yeah, let's be honest. It used to be go in there, get a quick fact fine, sign them up, off you go. And it's we've, we've moved, you know, this is decades ago until where we are today. And today is a very thorough process. It is understanding not just the insurance need as per se, it's understanding the affordability, the cash flow implications, the superannuation ownership of insurance. Yes, yeah, so ownership structures. It's understanding eligible service dates. It's understanding, in some cases, medical conditions and how they are implicated and you know the psychology of some of this stuff as well too. So to be a risk specialist, I believe you still need to know other areas. You still need to have a deep understanding of these other areas where maybe back in the day that wasn't necessarily the case. You could know risk and that's pretty much it. These days, if you don't understand the implications of your risk advice and the flow-on effects of that, you know, best interest duty will probably leave you out to dry, yeah? Um, 
And therefore, which is the next one in regards to kind of casual risk riders, it's then the other side of things. If you're doing investment planning and that's all you've been doing and that's your bread and butter, but you don't understand the implications of getting the you know, risk insurance done correctly, the flow on effects for that and the once again being hang up to dry, hang out to dry in regards to best interest duty, you could find yourself in a very, very tricky position. And we've personally taken on that, yes, I do goal-based financial planning. Um, that's what we do. That's what we're known for. But I'm still that internal kind of go-to for that risk specialist advice and teaming. We've done it internally. And then internally having specialists within the organization that the team can kind of go to or if clients have particular questions that they can kind of refer to. And that's where I think that the, that, that the world of risk specialist is changing. I think, to be honest with you, risk specialists that understand the indirects who maybe are financial advisors but have now just constantly uh, consciously made a decision to say, I'm not doing that. I'm just knowing my stuff and doing it really well. I think they'll actually survive and actually thrive with this because on the other side of the coin, what is there about 18,000 advisors? If I had to kind of take a little guesstimate out of there, I would have say a small percentage of risk specialists who might be willing to refer to these risk specialists to kind of team up. And I know there's a few people making a lot of good wins here. So I think the dynamic of the industry and the profession and where it's heading, it's either you know your stuff, team up and know your stuff. Or unfortunately, you got a question. Are you? Is this the profession you want to stay around in? Yeah, it's it's definitely one. It's a it's definitely a. You know, you mentioned the word casual risk rider there, and I think that's a that's a part that we're not going to see very much of uh, when it comes to uh, in, you know people being able to work. And and if I if I go back to here, whereas in the in the past you mentioned. Uh, the risk rider was it was a bit quicker and a bit easier, but there's also a lot of um, people that could work in as a as a professional, but part time, um, which I think will will start to lose. What are your thoughts, Kathy? I think the the way that John talked about this structuring, that's how I see. It. You know, I work in a practice with another advisor. You know, his focus is mainly on investments, and as soon as risk comes in the door, it, it lands on my desk. Now we've got a massive book of insurance clients, so. Um, it's this balance between can you have a risk specialist who has enough work to do this on a full-time basis versus, you know, what is a casual risk writer? Is this someone who has some insurance clients and is reviewing one a month or are they someone who's got one a quarter? And at what point in time is it not time efficient, cost efficient and in the client's best interest for that advisor to continually look after that? insurance policy so for me you know I've got no qualms that I'm I'm safe in what I do because I know what I'm doing in this space and it's the advisors who dabble in it that you know eventually are going to have to make a decision as to where they sit on the fence they're going to have to be in or they're going to have to be out because it's going to get too technical um, to be able to try and you know have a foot in both camps really yeah, I definitely think it's already that. It's already that. It's already that technical space, isn't it? It's either, like you said, don't dabble. You're either in or you're out. Uh, and having that strong process and house for you and philosophy that we mentioned um, previously in the episodes is, is really important. What are your thoughts, Serena? Uh, for me, I began my career as a normal financial advisor and then fell in love with risk and never looked back. So it's all I've done probably for about the last eighteen years and. 
I get referrals from lots of other financial advisors who just say, oh, my God, I can't do this. It's too hard. Um, I don't want to talk about that stuff. I don't want to know that stuff. How do you even remember all this stuff? Um, and so I guess it's what you gravitate to. You know, I'm, I don't gravitate to investment work. So for me, I am booked out, busy, lots and lots of referrals, clients, people that all need my help. And and I did consider, um, you know, whether I actually still wanted to stay in the industry a little while ago where you think, you know, is this does this still really light me up? And luckily the answer was yes. Um, but I also thought that people aren't going to stop getting sick and dying and people aren't going to stop needing money. And so as much as all these changes are happening, it's so, so useful for people to have older people like me around who actually have an understanding of older products or who have a network of people around that I can ask questions to, I never sit there thinking, gosh, I know all the answers. I absolutely don't. Um, You know, there's been many times where Jeff and I sit and chat on a Saturday because we're both nerds and we talk about cases where I'm like, how do I approach this, Jeff? What do I do? Um, to make sure that we're getting the best outcome. And it's such a detailed field. It terrifies me when I see people dabble because the damage that they can do is enormous. And and you don't know what you don't know. I have to, I have to support everything that's been said by Serena, John, and Kathy on this. Um, right now, it's a completely new paradigm. Uh, with the wide differentiation in terms and conditions on new income protection policies, from the 1st of October 2021 to the old stuff and be able to compare what's appropriate for the client, what's not appropriate, understanding the pricing pressures. Um, a casual risk writer who only bases the recommendation on price is unlikely to meet the best interest um, duty of their, to their clients. Because again, as Serena mentioned and John and Kathy have all mentioned, um, this is a highly specialized field it's a highly specialized profession and no one person is going to have all the answers. And effectively, that's why I created the team at MetLife that I did was because I've created a, a risk specialist technical team um, called Advice Strategy that allows people to advise, allows advisors to ring in and answer those technical queries. Um, and I think that for people who believe that they can do it by themselves or people who believe that they can be a casual risk writer and y'all just recommend insurance, I think they're very misguided in that process. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I can't help notice you mentioned the word shopping on price uh, in, that, uh, in that grab. And uh, that's something that I think, um, you know, the general public have been conditioned to do so often when it comes to insurance. And I think I love the saying that more than any, any other commodity when it comes to insurance, you get what you pay for um, around that scenario of, you know, like, you know, safety equipment and those sorts of things. Do you really, really, really want to shop on price? And I think advisors obviously um, – uh, spend a lot of time talking to their clients about that and understanding, uh, you know, it's obviously, yes, the needs to fit into their, their cash flow and affordability. Big, but, but John, what are your thoughts on um, conversations with clients around price? Yeah, I think I think just with price, it's, it's one of those ones that as probably a profession, we can obviously do better as well. And this is where the collaboration on a lot of fronts, BXY, AFA, FPA, whoever that is, and even working with government around, you know, educating about, the extensive nature or the extensive work we go through to finding the most appropriate cover for them. And then articulate, like, because uh, let's be honest, I think we do that very poorly in regards to this. So, you know, from a client's perspective, 
they think it's calling up, you know, for car insurance or ringing up compare the market or whatever it's going to be and it's just boom, boom and then answers there. Like we really need to get better in articulating the value, the value in which we go through to find the most appropriate cover and the cover that we've spoken about here, which is creates the certainty that in the event of a claim, they're highly likely to claim. And then from there, we may be able to get some ground uh, from some, some uh, subtraction in regards to, you know, clients saying, well, it's not just price because this is the other big one that a lot of people are falling into. And, and I know when I first started on, it was just kind of try and get the client on my books. Um, you move into back into that transactional space. Once again, 2022, that can't happen. You'll be put out to dry for that stuff. Um, so... Definitely just being focused on price has an implication on best interest duty, but as well too, that's that's the problem. But then what's the solution as well? I think, well, the solution comes financial literacy, education around value. Why do we do what we do? Like, you know, I've got two great advisors on here and I know they spend many, many, many hours, you know, going through stuff to try. I can't believe Kathy's Excel spreadsheet that she did in regards to just comparing the covers. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about coming over to see you, Kath, to do my risk protection just to do a review. But the reality is, is that's what we need the consumers to see because it's that that I would as a consumer say, oh, Look at the look at the value. She's making sure that well, they're looking making sure that no rocks being left unturned. And I think on that, like I've started explaining to clients that each client is a jigsaw puzzle, right? And every single jigsaw puzzle I do is different. But I need to make sure firstly, I have all the pieces to the jigsaw puzzles because clients will come and, and they won't want to tell you exactly how much they spend. They won't want to tell you that they have high blood pressure because they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. I manage it with medication. It'll be fine. And it's like, okay, but the insurer might want to know that and they might want to know the other thing that makes your high blood pressure not okay, like your sleep apnea for a reason, you know. Like they don't think it's important and they don't understand why it is actually important. So, yeah, I've started explaining about, you know, I love jigsaw puzzles. It's part of the reason that risk is something that I love doing because it is about fitting everything together and getting it in the right order, the right place and the pretty looking picture for the client. Um, but it is hard to articulate when the clients just come in and say, oh, well, hold on. Firstly, the fee that I'm going to have to pay um, is more than I thought it would be. I then have to pay for premiums on top of that. So I want them to be the cheapest that they can be. So it, Every single client that comes through the door, um, you're having that conversation. So I need to go back thinking about a few things that John said earlier about, you know, here's a video as to why we charge the fees that we do and what we do for your fee rather than me re-articulating that conversation every single time I see a client. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, uh, Kathy. And, and while we're talking about fees, traditionally, I guess with um, holistic advice, John, uh, you know, you're able to then sort of, uh, if it costs a lot of money to do risk and, uh, you know, sometimes that can be subsidised by investments and, and other parts of, or other work you're doing with clients, uh, how are you able to then, you know, look, uh, you know, for, for risk specialists say, um, are you, uh, do you price risk in as, as a true price or do you subsidise it or, is, you know, is it able to be a standalone thing? Yeah, we, we, we still receive commission from insurance. So over these years, um, I'm still yet to be convinced that moving to a flat fee um, or a fee arrangement is the right way. And and listen, there's a lot of arguments for, there's a lot of arguments uh, against. And 
everyone has their own way to do things. We charge um, a fee for service for all of our other services. We've also got lending, a part of the organisation um, as well too, and we don't charge a, a, a fee for that service as well too. Um, we believe that the remuneration structures that are for those uh, solutions are more affordable for the client, which is probably just one of our value sets. It's just what we're trying to do and just making it more accessible by having it through that structure. So no, we don't subsidize it. Actually, it's clearly articulated on our service agreement that we actually don't charge for that service. Um, In saying that, that's not a blanket rule. Um, Obviously, there's circumstances where we can't be remunerated for uh, via commissions um, and therefore we will charge a fee for those services as well. Um, And I'm also thinking in the space of as well too that we may end up due to the situation that we're in, uh, moving very much into the strategy-only solution, which uh, we haven't talked about today, uh, where there's a lot of work in the background about figuring out how much a client needs in regards to the needs analysis and in regards to that and the appropriateness of the levels of cover. Um, and I do think that there is a, there's a strategy-only solution that hasn't come out to market widespread that I have seen yet. Um, and then in that space, we would be charging a fee for service for that that, that solution. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's a very interesting piece. And uh, I guess the idea is just to work out what the, to be able to sh- show the client what the real value is in that strategy piece to be able to then, you know, justify them coming and, and putting some money forward. Um, Serena, tell us about um, your, the, you know, some of the work that you were doing with regards to how you charge and how, you know, you obviously just a uh, um uh, risk specialist space how do you then you know make sure that you're able to provide a service that's that's both profitable and sustainable for you as a business as well as um, affordable for the client yeah so it it sort of has evolved over time and I definitely got burnt myself as a business person many times because um, my helper gene is very strong so I meet people and I just want to do the work and to me I'm like I know how to do this let's just get it done um so for certain situations, now I would add a fee in as well because the commission received, so we still do receive commission, wouldn't wouldn't cover costs. When I look at the cost of time it takes for everyone to pull it all together, not just me but, but my team of people, um, we need to add a base level in there. And, and that's also getting a commitment from the client so that they're not wasting all of our time and shopping us around. I, I don't have time for that. If you're actually sitting in front of me, I will do the best that I absolutely can for you, but I, I don't want to be duplicated out there. That That's really frustrating if, if that happens, and I, I learned that the hard way. So typically the clients that I normally are referred, I think you're often referred similar, I guess, age and demographic to yourself. So I'm typically seeing people sort of my age range. So the premium that I'm seeing normally the commission is enough and I don't end up needing to charge on top of that. When we're talking about um, claims, and I know that that is something that we'll be covering off on a little bit later, I, I previously didn't charge anything for claims. And for clients where I've written the work and I've received commission along the way and, and it's all worked perfectly, I'm not charging them anything for that because I have been paid along the way. If it's someone that I have um, purely just met and I'm stepping in to clean up an enormous mess um, and and it's a results outcome, I've had to look at how, how I can manage that. 
because some of these things take a lot longer than you'd think um, and happy to talk about that a little bit further maybe later in, in the conversation today. When MetLife's gone around and surveyed various advisors, commissions are what we found is that fee-for-service, as the, per, as the premium increases, fee-for-service becomes an option for clients. As the pre, if the premiums are small, commissions allow clients to amortize the cost of advice over the duration of the policy. And so what you're finding is that depending upon the client's circumstances, some of them have no problem going in, into their pocket and paying a fee-for-service. Others basically say, I can't pay the additional and commission and a, a commission-based arrangement is perfectly acceptable to them. And I think having that option available to clients, a fee-for-service or commission based upon both the advisor's business model and the amount of work they put in, as well as the client's affordability situation, I think is absolutely necessary. Yep. Now, I, I did want to um, I did want to go into that claim conversations as well. Uh, Serena, you mentioned um, that sometimes people come to you to do a claim, and and they haven't been uh, you haven't been the previous advisor, and you got to and you got to you know create uh, start again. Um, tell us about those conversations with clients around charging a fee for a claim. Um, well, that's only something that I've done recently, and so previously I just did it and. The reason I do so many claims is I find I learn something every single time I do one, even more so when it is a mess. Um, you know, the ab- and, and I'm not talking about a medical mess, I'm talking about like a, a technical mess. So normally now when I'm looking at a claim, I, I try and assess, you know, is it a simple claim? Is it death, income protection? What are we actually working with? And how much time is going to need to go into it? How many insurers are involved? Um, what are the definitions we're looking at, and and also what's proportionate and fair in terms of their overall cost? Because I think all of us on this um, group know that at times there are others that will charge quite a high fee um, to help out and or to do the work, and and that that's I'm not trying to gouge. I'm just actually trying to cover the cost for the work that we're doing. So if I'm spending you know ten hours a week doing that work. I'm not spending 10 hours a week doing other work. And and as a business, I still need to pay my staff, pay my costs and all of those types of things. Plus also recognising that the client or the person is getting an enormous tangible outcome. I've kept a, a spreadsheet over the last eight, nine years of all of the claims that I've done and I've separated it by gender, type of claim and where they came from. You know, were they one of mine or were they someone else? Um, and it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, that would be an interesting spreadsheet. Uh, Jeff, what are your thoughts with regards to the – do you have any stats there, I suppose, what I'm, I'm after, around claims, around, you know, the, the amount of time and effort and energy that goes into each client? Um, I wish I did. Uh, the industry stats on time, energy, effort has been quite, been quite sparse. Um, Appers tried to pro- provide some general information on this uh, at a, at a um, macro level, but it's been difficult to actually see claims duration based on claims duration success and the rest are based on that stuff. So um, I know that Appers done some initial work on this. Um, I haven't been able to find the details enough to provide um, a quality comment on it yet. Yeah, I've I've always wondered too within the new products that are coming on whether they're actually going to create more headaches at claim time. In what way? In what way would you think that's Fraser? 
Well, just to, just if the older products were more more certain around, you know, that you're going to get paid this, you're going to get paid that, then they would be maybe easier to 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 um, administer at claim time. Um, when we think about the claim claim process, uh, normally the process is look up the policy document, get the medical reports from the doctors, um, interview the client, get the banking details. Uh, that's been fairly consistent, and the and the process and again as john's mentioned in previous podcasts often the biggest difficulty is engaging with the medical professionals and getting the appropriate information in a timely fashion so yes that's been that's been an issue at underwriting stages but it's also an issue at claim stages um what we found is that once the insurance company informs the medical practitioner that this is for one of their clients in order that, in order for them to receive a benefit um the turnaround time usually improves significantly, but it's it's getting that relevant information to say to sit back and say, do we have the documentation? Yes, we do. Then we can make the payment. That's that's been the often the biggest inhibitor to making sure it's to making sure the money right money right right money right person right time. Yep, fantastic, Serena. Um, one of the things that I would really reflect on is the timing of of the work that you do can have some pretty big flow on consequences, particularly when you're looking at buybacks. Um, so making sure that as as a, a business, you've done all you can to to trigger things at the right moment, so that if there is an opportunity down the track for those um, buybacks and things to to flow on, that they do. And part of that also is making sure that the information is correct in the first place. So sometimes I'm sure we've all known people who go by a slightly different name. Um, You know, if their name is Joe, their real name might be Giuseppe or whatever it might be. And I've had a couple of cases where we've had to spend quite a bit of time just backtracking to actually make sure the person's properly identified. So there's all the detail comes out at claim time. Every single thing you could think of, it is detailed. And it's not because the insurer is being difficult. It's because they have to make sure that they're paying the right person. Yep. Fantastic. John? Listen, claims are a very, very interesting one because I think that there's this whole like managing the client's emotional situation, which I think is our role. We've got the relationship with. But then sometimes I think like, are we doing a bit too much? And I found myself doing that. So I don't know about the other advisors on here, but we're now saying that any kind of long-term claims or potential long-term claims that we're outsourcing those and where there's a few kind of claim specialists that are in the XY community, for example, where we're partnering up with them to then refer that out. Um, I would rather do that than obviously refer that out to a lawyer in most circumstances. I think an advisor with claim experience and and understanding is way better suited for the client. And then just owning the relationship, which is more around getting them through that difficult time um, and setting the expectations around timeframes and what's to be expected and continuing to hold band. So back in the day, we would sit there and do hours and hours of work. Um, We've had a few long-term claims that I should have charged probably 20 times more than I, than I did, but, you know, it is what it is. And I'm sure many people have those stories as well too. But we ended up getting to a solution which we would have like a, a yearly fee. So what would happen is that we would get into a scenario where we'd kind of say to them, listen, this kind of arrangement will cover you for X amount of time. 
and then anything more than that period of time. And we weren't necessarily saying it on numbers. It was more on years. So like if this would take, say, longer than six months or longer than 12 months, it would trigger on a subsequent fee that we would need to, to charge you. Then it became a little bit hard to administer and then like it was just like put in the two hard basket with everything else going on in our profession. Um, so we found this, the best thing for us is that if we think that the claim is simple, um, we will take that on internally. And then if it's got any kind of complexities to that, we will stay as the kind of relationship manager and then coordinate those, those out. And 10 years ago, that wasn't even available. I don't think it even is around. But, you know, as people probably know in the XY community, there are services that now do that. Yeah, it's, an, it's been an interesting time, isn't it? It's all changing uh, and, and you're absolutely right. But there's a lot of time and effort um, that goes into these claims. And um, uh, and I think uh, I think the idea around the experience, or that we've got a lot of experience around the, of, of these particular claims. And I think um, it'd be a shame to lose uh, very much of that experience. And I think that's what's probably going to be happening with, um, you know, the people moving out of the industry uh, as the numbers drop, is we're actually going to lose a lot of years of claims experience. And this is this is the other thing around Fraser around innovation. So hopefully there's people on here that are listening that may be exiting the industry that there there could be another role that's being played out, um, and that's a role of of this kind of claims um, assessment and management and all of this stuff as well too. And I think there's a lot in regards to the the ongoing support of the licensed uh, the licensed financial advisors like we have a community of para planners and like we have a community of support staff or do we have a community of you know specialists that are practicing advisors that some way or some uh, some way can continue to contribute because there are some great risk advisors out there with so much experience and you know I've got a young team and and trying to kind of link those up would be absolutely amazing and in these these particular times, I reckon they know better than most. Yep, couldn't agree more. Fraser, one thing that I've that I've realized from the APRA stats is that when an advisor is involved, the dropout rate for a claim is reduced significantly. So the time, energy, and effort that the advisor puts in to ensuring the client gets through the process ensures that from whether it be death or TPD or trauma or income protection, that more clients go through the process and they don't sit back and say, I've had enough, I'm going to drop out. And when we compare the work that an advisor does versus them going it alone, whether it be through um, the direct to insurance policies, the group policies and stuff through super, advisors add an incredible amount of value by allowing the client to navigate the process to getting them that claim payment. Yeah, it is interesting the difference between the advised and non-advised in the APRA stats. Um, just, just on that though, that's a really interesting point because if the stats are so different, why, you know, how, how do we get there? How do we get to that point where we've got clients that uh, are not getting, getting their claims paid because maybe they're, um, there's, we're missing a person in the middle? I think also you would need to bear in mind some of the claims that aren't paid shouldn't be paid. Um, potentially if someone comes to an advisor, and, and I received one yesterday where someone sent me um, some hospital records that happened in the last couple of weeks and they're saying, this has just happened, can you suss it out and see if we're eligible for a claim? So at times people might be lodging a claim thinking that they're eligible when really a Band-Aid was sufficient. Yeah, and so the advisor cuts that off at the pass. Yeah. 
Thank you, everybody, for being part of this episode. We were talking about the the actual humans involved uh, in the process and, and um, with with regard to the, the products. Uh, I look forward to catching you all in the next episode. While care has been taken in preparing this material, MetLife Insurance Limited does not warrant or represent that the information, opinions or conclusions contained in this presentation are accurate. The information provided is general information only and is current at the time of production. To the extent permitted by law, MetLife does not accept any responsibility or liability arising from your use of this information. The information about MetLife Life Insurance is general only and does not take into account your personal situation, needs or objectives. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice and should not be relied upon as such. MetLife recommends that you obtain independent and specific advice from appropriate professionals before implementing a financial strategy, including reading any relevant product disclosure statements and terms and conditions. Before deciding whether to acquire or continue to hold any of our products, please read the PDS available at metlife.com.au. And for the class of consumers who the products are likely to be suitable for and any conditions around how the product can be distributed, please read the target market determinations for the products available at metlife.com.au as prepared by MetLife and Equity Trustees Super Limited. Life insurance products are issued by MetLife Insurance Limited, ABN 75004274882, AFSL 238096, and Equity Trustees Superannuation Limited, ABN 50055641757, AFSL 229757.